This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to MyHeart.net and um, today we're going to talk about the transforming type 2 diabetes care, what patients should know. And we're going to try to talk a little bit about um, what is um, a type 2 diabetes and how do we treat it, how the treatment has changed. And we're going to try to um, describe maybe an example of a patient that presents to the office with type 2 diabetes and we'll, have, we'll ask the expert how does he handle it and how does he approach that type of patient? So with us today, we have the, the honor to have Dr. Tim Garvey, who's um, professor of medicine in the Department of Nutrition Sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's also the founding principal investigator of the um, UAB Diabetes Research Center, and he's been doing that since 2008. So, um, Tim, uh, thank you very much for taking the time and being here for us on a rainy day. Well, it is a rainy day, Alan, but thank you very much for this invitation to join with you today and uh, your audience as well. Thank you. So let's start with the, uh, the beginning. We know that the, the prevalence of diabetes is very important in the U.S. Uh, we calculate that approximately 38 million people have diabetes. 90% of which have type 2 diabetes. So this is where we'd like to kind of focus a little bit. Let's go over some definition. What is type 2 diabetes? How does it compare to type 1 diabetes? And are there some patients in between? Yeah, well, let's just begin with the type 1 diabetes, which is more straightforward. This is a, a disease caused by autoimmune degradation uh, of uh, insulin-producing islet cells in the pancreas. Uh, and over a short period of time where this inflammation is, is ongoing and these beta cells are dying, uh, the patient becomes, you know, they, they must take insulin. Uh, they're, 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 there's insulin requirements here in order to prevent diabetic ketoacidosis and to stay alive. Uh, so that's type one. It usually uh, occurs in uh, adolescence, childhood, early adulthood, but really can occur at any age. Uh, we used to call it juvenile onset diabetes, but we now call it insulin-dependent diabetes or type 1 uh, because we know it can occur at any age. Now, type 2 diabetes, we used to call adult onset diabetes, can also occur at any age. In fact, we're seeing more of this in children. Um, the majority of these patients, 90% are obese, have obesity, and um, this type 2 diabetes accounts for about 90% of the diabetes, so it's much more common. Uh, it's a little bit more complex. It's pathophysiology. It involves insulin resistance in the body where uh, tissues cannot respond to uh, insulin as well as they should, combined with defects in insulin secretion, where the beta cell becomes kind of resistant to the ability of glucose, of sugar, to in, in, induce insulin secretory responses. So the, the patient doesn't have enough insulin and the insulin that is there doesn't work as well because of the per peripheral tissues are, are resistant to it. And so the blood sugars rise. Uh, these patients do not require insulin to stay alive for the most part, although many patients can require insulin 
to control the blood sugar, to control hyperglycemia. Uh, and both of these forms of diabetes place the patient at increased risk of, of complications, uh, particularly uh, the microvascular complications that affect the eye and the kidney and the nerves, uh, but also macrovascular, the larger blood vessels, uh, which mediate, uh, you know, which is really atherosclerosis is what we're talking about here that, that leads to stroke and heart attacks and, and peripheral vascular disease. Now, sometimes I see some patients, they look like they would be type 2 diabetic, but they're actually type 1. Uh, what happens in, that, in those patients? Yeah, this can be kind of tricky. Um, uh, and this really underscores the point that this is even type 2 diabetes is a heterogeneous disease. Uh, there's various combinations of the insulin secretory defect and the insulin resistance. Some patients have more of one than the other. And patients where it's primarily the insulin secretory defect, um, they can behave almost like type 1 diabetics. Uh, uh, they may need insulin sooner rather than later. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, a entity called uh, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, LADA, L-A-D-A, um, where there's also kind of loss of beta cells and uh, you know, we have to be careful when we uh, follow these patients. And one way to kind of discriminate is to is to get C-peptide levels, fasting C-peptide levels. And if they're, uh, you know, low, um, then, you know, we have to be, that, that we have to pay more attention to this and, and, and consider that they may have either type 1 or a, a form of type 2 that's where the insulin secretory defect predominates. Thanks. Seems like when I was training, and we're talking about in the 1980s. Yeah, tell uh, me about there was, it. <laughs> there was not a whole lot going on with the treatment of diabetes. I mean, we had insulin since the 1920s. We had sulfonylureas in the 50s. And then we had to wait until 1995 when we started having comp, you know, medications like metformin that works at the level of the liver. And then it's like there was a floodgate, you know, of new treatment with the TZDs, the 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 uh, GLP-1 agonists, the the uh, DPP-4, and finally SGLT-2 inhibitors. So can you help us a little bit, kind of break down a little bit this alphabet soup of treatment of patients with diabetes? Very confusing to me. Well, you're right. You know, when I was doing my medical uh, internship and residency, we had NPH and regular insulin. We had sulfonylureas. Metformin came along, and then we're dancing in the streets. You know, we have this new medicine. Um, but you're right. Then we had uh, uh, we had some um, some insulin sensitizing drugs, the uh, uh, the, the thiazolidinediones. Uh, the one on the market right now is pioglitazone, and that still can be a useful medication. Uh, we had the introduction of DPP4. Uh, well, the whole Incretin axis. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical area, including DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, which uh, prevent the breakdown of GLP-1 in the body uh, and lower glucose through that mechanism, which we can talk about later. And then we also had giving actual GLP-1s to patients, a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, to stimulate the receptor directly. Uh, and then you're right, we had the SGLT-2 inhibitors come along. Um, and now we we have uh, um, uh, Monjaro or, or, or terzepatide, which is a GIP, that's a gastric inhibitory peptide slash GLP-1 dual agonist, uh, this one peptide that stimulates both receptors. So I, I guess it's a GLP-1 receptor agonist plus a GIP. So we now have this 
more full armamentarium, uh, more arrows in our quiver, if you will, to kind of uh, address this disease. I, I might mention that the evolution of these medicines, you know, we used to just want to control blood sugar. That's what we ask of our diabetes medicines, to control blood sugar, hopefully with not too much hypoglycemia. Now we ask so much more of our diabetes medicines. It's not only do we want to control blood sugar, we want to do it without hypoglycemia. Uh, we want to do it without uh, certainly no weight gain and even preferably some moderate weight loss. Uh, we want to uh, them to be cardioprotective, uh, prevent heart attacks. We want them to be renal protective, prevent the decline in, in, in glomerular filtration rate and the, in the emergence of albuminuria. Uh, we want them to improve congestive heart failure, prevent hospitalizations for congestive heart failure, and even uh, address uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, uh, which are, are, these patients are prone to, of course. And it's really treating diabetes in a broader pathophysiological context, and that is cardiometabolic disease. This one disease process with insulin resistance at its core that produces both metabolic and vascular disease. So we have to treat diabetes in this more comprehensive, holistic uh, perspective. I'm very glad you mentioned that because it seems like uh, even when I was starting to practice in the 1990s, all we were focused on is, is about uh, glycemic control or the control of the blood sugar. And, and with that, we could see that we could really kind of decrease the microvascular, you know, problem in the eye and in the kidneys. But we, it was very difficult and it was really very little effect on macrovascular disease problem like the heart attacks and, and the strokes and so forth. And, and so much so that in 2008, there was a lot of report on Evandiev, you know, rosiglitazone that had an increase, apparently an increased problem with heart attack. And, and the FDA required, you know, to have, you know, these, if we study new medication, we need to make sure that we look at cardiovascular outcome because, you know, what do the diabetic patient die of? They die of heart disease. So I think there's been quite really a change, you know, and a different emphasis in the treatment of, of diabetic patients now focusing a lot on whether the patient is at risk for heart disease or whether they have heart disease already. And, and for us, at, you know, focusing our treatment, um, you know, on, on agents that do improve. And what are what are the main category of, of agents do we have, um, Tim, to really provide a decrease in cardiac mortality and decrease in heart failure? Yes, well, um, you know, you're right. These are earlier treatments that I mentioned, uh, the sulfonylureas, metformin, insulin, uh, the DPP-4 inhibitors. Uh, we now know through clinical trials that they're not harmful. Uh, they're, they're, but uh, neither do they to protect patients against cardiovascular disease. They're they're uh, they're non inferior, if you will. Um, but that's so that's good. They're safe from that perspective. Uh, but now we've had some trials with the GLP one receptor agonist. Um, we've had uh, the uh, sustain six and the Pioneer six study. Uh, that's uh, subcutaneous semaglutide ozempic and oral semaglutide uh, ribelsis. These trials showed that these drugs had a, a, a in diabetes had a, a cardiovascular benefit. Um, the oral semaglutide in Pioneer Six there, there were improvements, but it wasn't quite statistically significant. But uh, the sub subcutaneous uh, semaglutide in uh, the uh, sustained six trial was a significant, uh, significantly cardio cardioprotective. 
Um, and and now we know with uh, 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 with uh, with higher with even even in non patients without diabetes, we know uh, that semaglutide higher dose semaglutide for treating obesity can be cardioprotective, uh, resulting in a twenty percent decrease in cardiovascular disease events. And these are on patients already on statins and already on angiotensin blockade for blood pressure. I mean, these medicines really look to me more better than statins for preventing heart disease, you know, because when the clinical trials with statins were done, you know, we saw a 20 to 30% reduction, but these patients, you know, didn't where their blood pressure wasn't treated. There were, there were no glip one receptor agonists at that point, but at any rate, we a loraglutide, I should also mention, uh, the Victoza has also been shown to have reduced these MACE events, you know, major adverse cardiovascular disease events, um, usually taken to be a composite outcome, usually uh, taking into account cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. Any one of those prevents that composite outcome. So um, this is all good news. Um, the final, uh, the Monjaro, the terzepatide, the GLP-1 GIP receptor agonist, these trials are ongoing, um, so-called morbidity and mortality outcomes trial. So we'll have data there uh, in the next couple of years. So, um, you know, it's, and then, so we're really talking about cardiovascular disease there. So we know the GLP-1 receptor agonists are beneficial. Also have positive data with dulaglutide, trulicity along those lines. Uh, now, these drugs, GLP-1 receptor agonists are also can slow the rate of, of, of decline in a glomerular filtration rate and the appearance of uh, albuminuria. So they, they're renal protective. Um, the other group of medicines, the SGLT2 inhibitors, and, you know, and there we have, um, you know, empagliflozin, uh, uh, Jardiance, we have um, um, dapagliflozin for SIGA, canagliflozin, uh, Invokana, and uh, um, ertagliflozin, uh, Steglarto. You know, uh, these medicines have also been shown to be uh, helpful with, cardi with uh, congestive heart failure, uh, prevent uh, hospitalizations due to congestive heart failure, and also to be renal protective, to slow the rate of decline in EGFR. And in fact, if you look at all of the guidelines, the evidence-based guidelines, whether from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, from the American Diabetes Association, uh, the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, across the board, uh, these organizations are recommending the treatment with GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT2 inhibitors, independent of hemoglobin A1C, if the patients are at high risk or have heart disease, cardiovascular disease, or chronic kidney disease, or congestive heart failure. So uh, that's a big change, okay? Yes, you can start with metformin, but if you have a patient that is at high risk of cardiovascular disease or heart, has cardiovascular disease, consider GLP-1 receptor agonist addition, um, uh, or if they have a chronic kidney disease or congestive heart failure, consider SGLT2 inhibitor addition to metformin, even if the hemoglobin A1C is under control because of these additional benefits that these drugs have. Well, you know, I can see that, you know, you, the, you've been treating diabetes for 40 years now, and it looks like the treatment keeps getting better and better. And probably you've changed, you know, the way you treat, you know, your patients with diabetes. I understand we have great medication. Obviously, lifestyle change is still your number one. I mean, we used to have like 
diabetic, you know, uh, nutritional teaching. Do you still do that, or do you you um, you adopt mostly, uh, you know, heart healthy, you know, kind of diet, Mediterranean lifestyle, uh, and um, and nutrition? Do you monitor the blood sugar, you know, uh, with with the technology that we have now, like Libre and some other devices? And well, absolutely. Uh, in in type one diabetes, you know, I'll, I can't imagine a type one patient with type one diabetes on insulin that shouldn't have a continuous glucose monitoring, a CGM device. Uh, you mentioned the Libre, there's Dexcom, there's a number of different brands for these CGMs, chronic, uh, continuous glucose monitoring devices. Uh, in type two diabetics though, uh, you know, they're, they're approved now, or you can get insurance coverage for them in type two diabetic patients who are also on insulin. Um, I happen to think they can be beneficial even if the patient's not on on, on insulin. Uh, the patient may have to pay for that out of pocket in some instances, but, um, uh, and these guidelines are being, there's a lot of advocacy for broadening the use of CGMs in, in type two diabetes, even in patients not on insulin. Um, they're very good at kind of looking, uh, getting your average glucose. And now a, a target for glycemic control is the time and range. Uh, the time and range throughout the day for good glucose control. Um, in addition to hemoglobin A1C, in addition to fasting glucose, and that time and range you can only get with continuous glucose monitoring. So this has been a, such a valuable tool in helping us get better glycemic control and avoid hypoglycemia. Well, we we have the treatment of diabetes that has really evolved, and but also part of this problem is we have a we have pre-diabetes a condition that is, uh, we have over 80 million, you know, uh, Americans with pre-diabetes. Uh, what is your approach in these patients? I mean, I, first of all, can you define for us, you know, what is pre-diabetes and, and then how do we treat them? Well, pre-diabetes, of course, is, is, a, is a dysglycemia that falls in between normal glycemia and the degree of hyperglycemia that is required for the diagnosis of diabetes. So it's kind of in between. But it's not a benign condition. Uh, for one thing, we know that atherosclerosis is accelerated. These patients usually have metabolic syndrome, prediabetes. Uh, they are insulin resistant. Uh, they're on in the middle of the progression of cardiometabolic disease towards its end stage manifestations of diabetes and, and atherosclerosis, atherosclerotic heart disease. Um, and we need to kind of pay attention to patients with prediabetes. And what are our goals? First, aggressive risk factor management. Um, these patients should have LDL cholesterols below 100 in my uh, estimation based on, and even a seven, up down to 70 uh, based on the Jupiter trial. Uh, blood pressure control 120 over 70 using ACE inhibitors or, or, or angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs. Um, and what about progression to diabetes? That's what we have to pay attention to as well because they're uh, their risk of progressing to diabetes is about could be as high as five percent per year. So uh, if they have obesity, the best approach is weight loss. And uh, I know we're not going to talk about high, uh, weight loss medications on this instance now, but uh, uh, we have new powerful medicines to, to to get weight off of folks at a level ten percent weight loss is maximal for pre preventing progression to diabetes in these patients. So. That's my target is to get 10% weight loss. If they uh, are do not have obesity 
and there are certainly patients with prediabetes that are, are, are lean even. Um, of course, weight loss is not an option, but we have um, we have other things we can do. I, I like low-dose uh, pyolidazone. That's thiazolidinediones in those patients, like 15 milligrams a day. Um, and of course, in both sets of patients, whether they have obesity or not, uh, lifestyle is important. Um, we know that a Mediterranean diet and exercise uh, can prevent progression to diabetes independent of weight loss. Uh, so uh, those are so lifestyle is important as well. We know it's a it's a disease, a lifelong disease, but can we actually cure type two diabetes? Well, no, you can't. you know the 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 surgeons like the, the bariatric surgeons. You know, you you get bariatric surgery, you lose a lot of weight. The diabetes uh, goes away. At least there's normal blood sugars uh, there. The surgeons like to call that a cure. Uh, but in actuality, I think pathophysiologically, it's better to look at it as remission uh, because uh, these patients, a chronic disease, these patients will always have a, a predisposition now to uh, a deteriorating glycemia and the reemergence of, of type 2 diabetes, which occurs more often than not. Uh, so yes, uh, uh, these patients go into remission, but there's no cure. Um, it's just like... Um, uh, you know, we put patients with hypertension on antihypertensive, the blood sugar is normal, it's treated to target, doesn't mean they don't have hypertension. Uh, patients with obesity, we can get weight off of them, uh, but they still have the pathophysiological drivers towards weight regain, so they will always have obesity. Uh, you know, it's a chronic that patients with asthma, they will always have asthma, it may get better over time. Um, but they're always going to be at increased risk of, of bronchospasm uh, from one allergen or the other. So it's it's just the way we have to view these chronic diseases. They require uh, lifelong uh, a commitment to lifelong management and follow up, uh, even if they're doing very well and it looks like uh, uh, all of the parameters of the disease are, are are back down to normal. But you know they're at high risk of of uh, things deteriorating. Well, Tim, thank you very much. I think uh, we learned a lot. I mean, transforming type 2 diabetes and what the patient uh, should know. And uh, from Tim Garvey, professor of medicine at the University of Alabama. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Alan. It's been fun. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.